you've got a Bible with you, um, perhaps you could open it please to Exodus chapter 2. It's on page 59 in the Red Church Bibles. Exodus chapter 2. So just the last three verses then of Exodus chapter 2. <coughs> so beginning at verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites, and he was concerned about them. <clears throat> so the question for us this morning, or this afternoon, sorry, the question for us is what do you do when nothing seems to be happening? What is God up to when it looks like he's doing nothing at all? You seem stuck in a situation that never seems to change. It just seems hopeless. You begin to wonder if God even cares. <clears throat> well, this, I think, must be something like the Israelites felt when they were under the yoke of slavery in Egypt. And the Bible has many instances when this is the testimony of God's people. It seems like God is distant, he's not hearing, he's not answering. So if it happens to us, perhaps we should not be surprised. The Apostle John, who was in exile in a Roman penal colony on the island of Patmos, it's a lovely holiday isle now, but it wasn't then, it was uh, under the harsh regime of the Romans. He may have felt abandoned, but God gave him an amazing vision and he opened up heaven to John so that John could see what was going on behind the scenes and he wrote down what he saw in the book of Revelation and this is the first thing he saw or at least part of what he saw then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals now, as you read on from that verse, it turns out that no one in all the universe was found able to open this scroll apart from one person. And the one person was described as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus was unable to lock, unlock, so sorry, Jesus was able to unlock the scroll of the history of the world and the plan of God's salvation and his judgment as well. So like a, a wartime control room where there is a map and pieces are pushed around on the map, there's plenty of activity going on, even if those on the ground, like John, couldn't see what was happening. Matthew Henry, the theologian and commentary writer, wrote this. He said, the God of Israel, the saviour, is sometimes a God that hides himself, but never a God that is absent. Sometimes in the dark, but never at a distance. Verse 23 in our reading from Exodus begins, during that long period. Now that's a bit of an understatement really. It had been 40 years since Moses had left Egypt under a cloud. And it had been 400 years since the Israelites had been made slaves in Egypt. And during that time, God seemed to have done nothing at all. 
he seemed to have been distant, absent, not hearing what was going on. After the magnificent success of Joseph's saving of Egypt from famine, it had all gone downhill from there. The people were slaves with no prospect of escape. But a change was coming. The king of Egypt died. That's what it says. The king of Egypt died. Now, it may be referring just to the pharaoh that uh, Moses had known. Uh, He had died and the throne had passed to somebody else. Of course, during the 400 years of slavery, many kings will have come and gone. Why does the writer particularly uh, pick on this one? I think maybe because there was a change afoot. Something was about to change. Now, we read earlier on the the, uh, um, description of Mary and Joseph's flight into Egypt with the baby Jesus. And the parallels of that um, with this passage or with this uh, story are quite stark, aren't they? It had been 400 years since God had last visibly intervened in the life of Israel. Between the end of the Old Testament, um, the last prophet Malachi, and the beginning of the New when the angels announced the birth of the baby Jesus, was 400 years. 400 years in which God appeared to be doing nothing. He appeared to be silent. Now the promise of the Messiah came, a tiny, vulnerable child. But he was taken to Egypt for safety because the king sought his life. And he was kept safe in Egypt until a new king ruled. And Matthew quotes from the book of Hosea, the prophet said, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, of course, that prophecy uh, was originally meant to describe the Israelites. God called Israelites, the Israelites, his son, and he called them out of Egypt in the Exodus story that we're studying at the moment. But Matthew deliberately applies it to the coming of the Lord Jesus and his being brought out of Egypt. God called his people out of Egypt and he called his Messiah out of Egypt as well. Matthew is deliberately drawing a parallel between the Exodus story and the coming of the Saviour, the Messiah. And we are obviously meant to draw from that the idea that the salvation story in Exodus is meant to point forward to the coming of the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the point of this is that even when external circumstances change, the situation often seems to be static and the same. Yes, there's a new king, but the people were still in slavery. Yes, the saviour had come, but there was a new Herod who was just as despotic and evil as the old one. So a new start, yes, But is it the same old story? What do we do when nothing seems to be happening? When it is the same old story? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is to look beyond the immediate circumstances and turn our eyes to heaven, just like John did, where things are never static, but God is always working out his purposes. What is happening in the throne room of heaven where the real power is? So let's see how this plays out for the Israelites. And the first thing is 
that God moves to centre stage. Now, verses 23 to 25 that we just read form a bridge between uh, chapters 1 and 2 and obviously chapter 3 and the rest of the story. And in chapters 1 and 2, God is not mentioned, well, he is mentioned only once in relation to the midwives. You remember, um, Ian talked about the midwives. The midwives feared God and refused to carry out Pharaoh's disgusting um, uh, law or, or ruling to kill all the babies. And God rewarded them, and we're told that God rewarded them. So he's only mentioned there in those two chapters until we get to these verses, verse 23, when God is mentioned three times in three verses. You can feel the change of emphasis. You can feel that something's about to happen. God is moving to centre stage. And from this point on in the story of the Exodus, God is centre stage. It's not Pharaoh, it's not even Moses, who's going to be the main character in the rest of the story. It's going to be God, God orchestrating, God guiding, God's power demonstrating, God protecting his people, God saving his people, God rescuing his people. Moses is merely an implement in God's hands. And the first thing that God does, we read here, is that he remembered his covenant. He remembered his covenant. At the end of Genesis, when we leave Joseph and his family as honoured guests in Egypt, things had seemed okay. But Joseph, who was nearing death at the end of Genesis, knew that their destiny, destiny was not to be in Egypt. Because God had made a promise, a covenant, with Abraham to give the Israelites a land, to make them a nation, to give them a place to dwell where they could worship God. And he made this statement, God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Now the time had come and God remembered his covenant. He remembered his promise to Abraham. Of course, God hadn't forgotten his covenant. God doesn't forget. It's just that up until now, the time had not yet come for its fulfilment. In God's providence, the time as slaves in Egypt was part of their preparation for the next stage of his great plan of salvation. Ian showed us a few weeks ago about one of the remarkable things about the Israelites while they were slaves was their fruitfulness how they became very fruitful. They had lots of children. If they were going to invade the promised land, subdue and defeat its occupants, and establish a nation under God, then being a rabble of a few hundred ex-slaves was not going to do. They needed to be a large number. And at the Exodus, there were probably around a million or more of them. And they needed a leader. And as we saw last week, Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness being trained by God for his role as a leader of the people. So the time of seeming silence was not wasted time as far as God was concerned. He was working his purposes out behind the scenes. But now he begins to act openly. In chapter 3, I don't think I'm going to throw too much of a spoiler in here, uh, but in chapter 3, God will reveal himself in a dramatic way 
to Moses at the burning bush. But now he begins to move in the throne room of heaven. If you like, on that map, he begins to push the pieces around to orchestrate things so that his plan of rescue and salvation can be put into practice. When we go through dark and difficult times, it's not so much the physical circumstances around us that really matter. Who is on the throne in Egypt? Who's on the throne in Israel? Or anywhere else? Who's our boss? What's going on in our lives? They aren't really the issue. The issue is, what is God doing behind the scenes? What is his plan? What is the ultimate fruition of what he wants? And sometimes we just have to sit tight and wait for him to work his plan out, to reveal himself, to show us the way. Often, like Moses, we're impatient. We want to sort it out for ourselves. And that's not the best option. In his teaching on spiritual warfare, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians says that there is much that we can do to prepare for battle. We can take on the armour of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, uh, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit. They are given to us. But through it all, there is a message, and the message is to stand. <clears throat> Paul writes, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand just to stand. Friends, it's often one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? Just to stand and wait for God. We live in a frenetic and activist time. We want to be up and doing. We want to be active. We want to take things under our own control. We want to see things done. But God has time. He has all the time in the universe. And sometimes waiting is his way. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, and we need it. Let's ask God for more of it. So God began to move behind the scenes. What then? Well, the people start to pray. Waiting doesn't mean to say that we have to be totally inactive. Paul's final instruction in preparing for battle in Ephesians was that we should pray. Pray, he said. Pray on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. Now we have many grounds on which we can come to God in prayer. We can claim his promises. We can come in the name of Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians we can pray in the spirit. We can come in the knowledge of what his will is. If we read it in scripture, if it says it's God's will, then we can pray confidently that his will will be done. But none of these is what the Israelites did here. They didn't do any of those. What did they do? They cried out. Their prayer was a one-word prayer. Help! That was their prayer. God help us in this situation. Verse 23 says they groaned in their slavery and they cried out. And it was a cry for help. Now we may think it was a sort of poor us, get us out of this situation type of prayer. You know, a bit like the celebrities, get me out of here, quick. And I'm sure there was some element of that in it. They wanted out. But in Deuteronomy chapter 26 and verse 7, 
Moses makes it clear that their prayer was in a specific direction. He says this, They cried out to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Now, it doesn't say that in, in, in Exodus, it just says they cried out to God. But Moses expands it when he's relating the story, and he says they cried out to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And there's a whole bundle of meaning in that phrase. In the midst of pagan Egypt, with all its gods and goddesses, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Now when the Bible writes Lord in capital letters like that, it is translating the letters YHWH or Yahweh as we call it, which is the name which God revealed to Moses at the burning bush as to who he was. But the Israelites haven't met him yet, they were still in slavery in Egypt and they certainly didn't know his name. But it was to him they cried out, Moses says. They concentrated and focused their prayers on the Lord God. And he was the God of their fathers. He was the covenant God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So no, this wasn't just a get me out of here type of prayer, inward looking, selfish. It was a prayer to the covenant keeping God that he would act on their behalf as his covenant people. I want to say, friends, today that it's okay to cry out to God for help when you need to. There's a progression here in the people's action. We're told, first of all, they groaned. That's the first natural response, isn't it, of adverse circumstances. We groan. Oh, dear. What a state we're in. What a position this is. But then they moved on. The, first, the next thing they did was they cried out. And that's a bit more urgent. It's a reaction to suffering and pain. We don't normally vocalise a cry unless we are suffering pain of some sort. But finally, it says, they cried out for help. And this is the beginning of the answer. If you're crying out for help, there has to be someone there to cry to. Somebody who you believe has the ability to help you. Otherwise, there's no point in crying out help. A prayer like this turns our human reaction of groaning into a Godward cry. Prayer brings God into the situation. And their prayer was specific, if I can say it. It was because of their slavery. That's what it says, because of their slavery. They had no claim on God, no mitigating circumstances, they simply cried out because of the mess they were in, the slavery that they were under. And verse 23 says, their cry went up to God. God does hear our cries. As we shall see as the story unfolds, the answer is not immediate, and there are many trials to go through before its fulfilment comes. But what we can be sure of is that God hears and acts for the accomplishment of his will and for our good when we cry out to him. So the people start to pray and God hears their cry. What happens next? Well, it is that God responds in grace. God's response to their cry for help was fourfold. He heard 
He remembered, he looked, and he was concerned. We can have the next, that's it, yeah. So let's look briefly at each of these, shall we? These responses that God made. It comes in verse 24, it says, God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites, and he was concerned about them. I'll tell you why I've written new there for a moment, in a moment. So first of all, he heard. And he heard before he looked. Now, I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but God wants to hear our prayer before he looks at our situation. Of course, he can see our situation. He knows it, and he can act whenever he wants. But he longs to hear our prayer to him. There is a special response when we cry out to God. In Mark's Gospel, we read the story of blind Bartimaeus who was on the road as Jesus passed by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the response of Jesus was to call him and ask him, what do you want me to do? Now I'm sure Jesus knew what he wanted them to, him to do. I'm sure even the dullest disciple must have realised that what Bartimaeus wanted was to receive his sight back. It was, if I can use the uh, pun, it was blindingly obvious what he wanted. So it's not that God can't act without our prayer, but it is that he wants to act in response to our prayer so that we can learn to trust him, to follow him, to believe in him, to see him in action. So God heard. Then he remembered his covenant. No, he hadn't forgotten his covenant, as we said. But this was his response to the people's cry. Prayer, as we said, brings God into the situation. Now, we know pretty well all there is to know about our children's needs, especially when they're small. But when they come to us and say, Daddy, can I? Or, Daddy, please, can we do so-and-so? It makes it special, doesn't it? We could care for them quite adequately, without ever a word being spoken. They would get fed, they would get clothed, they would get sheltered, they would get looked after. But what sort of relationship would it be if they never spoke and we never spoke? <coughs> it is a mystery, but God wants us to pray, and when we pray, he remembers. And specifically, he remembers his covenant. Of course, for the Israelites, this was the covenant that he gave uh, that he gave Abraham to give them a land and to make them a nation. That was his covenant and it was going to be fulfilled. For us, well, it's the covenant that we have in the blood of Jesus to forgive us, to cleanse us and to prepare us for heaven. That is his mission. And whatever we're going through at any time, it's part of the process of moulding us and making us and preparing us. John's final vision in Revelation was of the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And he says that it was prepared as a bride for her husband. Now, when a bride gets prepared, there's a lot of work goes into it. She gets a new dress. She's beautifully dressed, gets her hair all done up, gets her nails done, gets a bouquet in her hand, maybe put some makeup on. 
And it's a long and arduous process, or so I'm led to believe anyway. God is preparing you and me to become the bride of Christ, and it may take a while. There may be a lot of preparation to do. So be prepared to go through the preparation because one day we are going to stand before God, prepared, ready, clothed in white clothes, ready to be the bride of Christ. <coughs> then, fourthly, God looked. God looked on his people. That wasn't just a fleeting gl glance. Oh, oh, look, there they are down there. What a shame. What a mess they're in. It wasn't like that at all. This word looked has the, the idea, the sense of assessing the situation, of looking at it critically, carefully. We have many examples in the Gospels of Jesus looking. And the looks are always meaningful. They're never just glances. They always have a, a meaning behind them. He looked at Nathaniel when he was calling the disciples and he saw a man who was honest but seeking answers to questions. Jesus looked at a rich young man and the, the Bible tells us he loved him. He loved him. How poignant is that? He looked on the crowds and had compassion on them. He looked at Jerusalem and wept. He looked at Mary from the cross and committed her into the care of John. When God looks at us, he sees far deeper into our hearts and souls than maybe we would like or feel comfortable with. But he always looks with compassion and love. God looks at situations and he knows the beginning from the end, from the machinations of governments to what's going to land in the inbox that we are going to have to deal with today. He knows. He knows. He looks. He sees. God looks and knows. We can entrust each situation to him. We can bring it to him in prayer. We can give it to him and ask him to help us through it, to guide us, to lead us through. Finally, we're told that he was concerned about them. That's what the NIV says, he was concerned. But that word in the original simply says God knew, he knew. And it's the word know in scripture which is used for the most intimate of relationships. When Adam knew his wife Eve, it wasn't a quiet fireside getting to know you sort of chat because the result was the birth of a baby. It was that sort of intimacy of knowing. God was no longer distant, absent, forgotten and unknown. He had drawn close to his people to establish an intimate relationship. Excuse me, I'm going to have to blow my nose. I've got a cold, by the way. So the Saviour, God the Saviour, was coming and he was going to get involved, intimately involved with his people. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that we have someone just like that. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus knows. He knows the problems you face, the temptations you face, the trials you face, because he's been there. He knows. 
And the writer to the Hebrews goes on to say, let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness. Jesus knows, he knows deeply and intimately what we're going through. And he has acted in grace to rescue us from the slavery of sin. God's rescue mission for the Israelites begins right here with him looking, seeing, remembering and knowing. His rescue mission for us began at the cross. Jesus suffered and died so that Satan's tyrannical reign would be ended and our slavery to him broken. He hears, he remembers, he looks, he knows. So what's to stop you crying out to him because of your slavery, whatever that slavery might be? If you've never yet come to Christ for that freedom and asked him to be your saviour, now maybe is the time to do it. Scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, just like the Israelites did, will be saved. And if you are a Christian this afternoon and you're going through a dark time, you too can cry out to the covenant-keeping God and be assured he hears, he remembers, he looks and he knows. So trust him, cry to him, seek his way and his will and stand firm until he answers. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can trust you we thank you that you do look and see our situation, that you're not distant and remote. We thank you that you hear our cries. We thank you that you answer, that our cries go up to you. We thank you we can trust you even though we can't see the answer immediately. Help us to stand firm, to keep our eyes on you, to trust you and to wait for you to act. And help us to give you the glory when you do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.